Welcome back to the Medical Illustration Podcast. This is your host, Paul Kelly, professional medical illustrator working in Toronto, Canada. For this episode, I wanted to upload the audio from a video interview I did a few months back with a retired medical illustrator I met through the AMI Members Forum. Known through most of her career by her maiden name, Florence has had a unique path through this industry, and I thought a lot of people would benefit to hear from it. So without further ado, here's my interview with Florence Kabir Hauser. Hello. Hi. Hi, Florence. Hey, nice nice to meet you. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that your picture's better on here than it is on the AMI. Oh, thank you. (laughs) And of course, you never saw my picture, so here I am. That's okay. Well, whatever you want to ask me, you ask me. (laughs) Okay. Shall we start off with maybe just a little bit of your history in the field? I'm not totally sure which graduate program did you go to, or were you self-taught? I can tell you how I got started. I was a painting teacher, and I had a carpool with other people to take little kids to school, and a guy happened to be in the anatomy department, and he said, oh, you've got to go to anatomy and see the pictures that came over from Europe. And uh, I thought, oh, you know, when you're an artist, people always say, oh, you've got to go to my cousin's opening or you've got to go to this gallery and see. And I always went because, you know, to be polite. So (laughs) So I turtled down to the hospital, had no idea what anatomy was. Well, I knew what it was, but the use of it. And I looked at all these pictures and I thought, I can do that. So the guy who was head of anatomy said, oh, just go in the lab and see what they do in there. And the kids are really nice. I was 40 at that time and the kids were like 17 or whatever. So, you know, it's kind of making a big change a little later. I'm so glad I did. So he said, well, you know, if you really want to do it, you have to do your own dissection. So I said, okay. So that was the beginning of making my portfolio. And I did the a female cadaver and took my time. because I realized you cut it off, you don't have it anymore. Right. I made my portfolio. And from there, I just was very, very fortunate. I went to lectures for the anatomy kids. And the first lecture was by a fellow who was a neuroanatomist. And I just went up to him and said, do you need any drawings? He said, well, can you draw the brain? I said, I don't know. And he said, well, come on over. <laughs> and I ended up doing his, the drawings for his brain dissection in his book called The Human Brain and Spinal Cord. His name was Leonard Hamer. Well, then I thought, oh, the end of the world is at hand, because now what am I going to do? And then... I went to another lecture, a very interesting man, Dr. Edgerton, who is a reconstructive surgeon, gave his talk. So I took all my little drawings to him. Little did I know, he had been a big guy at Johns Hopkins before he came down to University of Virginia. And he had the best people leaning over his shoulder. I'm so glad I didn't know that. And he looked at my drawings and said, have you ever drawn in surgery? And I said, no. So again, the big trial. And he turned around and said, are you still here? And I said, no, I wouldn't leave for anything. And I stayed with him for 20 years and did his book. And uh, so I didn't, 
I didn't go through any of these programs. I already had the art. Mm. I did two cadavers because we were over in a sabbatical in um, Switzerland. My husband was in the physics, doing physics at CERN. And I, of course, went down to the anatomy department and they gave me a body. And they said the only thing they wanted when I left was to pick a few drawings. So I thought, well, that's, that's a good trade-off. And so I got a mail there, looked like Jacques Cousteau, gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> so then I did some drawings for a, a, a surgeon over there because I was sketching in a lecture and he came over and said, I see you are doing drawings and he needed and I, I did. Came back and hooked up with the Dr. Edgerton's group again, and it just it just kind of I was just really really lucky that I could make it. I guess just day to day. Wow. Well, I think you probably blew them out of the water with your skills. I mean, fortunately, I could already draw. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to go through all that laborious stuff. But I did learn so much from the anatomy, and that's what I tell everybody. If you have a chance to do dissection, it's the best teacher you'll ever, ever have. All the books, all the lectures, and all the observation, there's nothing like doing it with your own hands. Oh, yeah. And especially from life as well, right? I mean, trying to draw from, even if you have really good photos, it takes away that depth. And so you're not able to reproduce it in the same way, right? Right. And then... I don't know, when I showed up at the hospital with my little scrubs on, and <clears throat> nobody knew my name, but if they were coming out of the medical library, they knew who I was, and they'd come up and say, oh, we're doing a hysterectomy tomorrow morning, or I need a drawing of the liver to take to Italy, and it just kind of grew. Wow, wow. It was a different time. It was a different time, and I, there was no digital art. It was sit there and draw it. and. So there was some guy showing people things. And I said, well, where do I get carbon dust pencils? And he said, well, you know, in the university bookstore, back where the office is, there's a door that's it's kind of tied open with a rope. And down on the floor, there's a cigar box with carbon dust pencils. And I thought, oh, man, is he pulling <laughs> my leg? So I went over, and sure enough, there they were. And they'd already been sharpened, and some of them broken. And that's how I got my first carbon dust pencils. So that technique was more widely used when, oh. you, when you were starting out? Yeah. Yes, if you go back, if you go back to Johns Hopkins people back in say oh, the 40s and 50s in there, I can show you what the technique looks like. It was wonderful, very tedious. I had to take your little pencil, put it on, you know, an emery board or something. Oh, those little sandpaper kind of things, right? Uh, sandpaper yeah and you make a little dust and then you take a red sable brush you had to have a fine brush and you brushed it onto scratch board though you weren't scratching some people did add ink and scratch as well but it just was a beautiful receptive surface and mm. here here's i'll just show you one drawing because it's, it kind of shows you what you can do with carbon dust I can't see what I'm oh, doing. Oh, yeah. But that's all carbon dust. Oh, yeah. That's this, beautiful. This is, the, this is the Edgerton book. 
the art of okay. surgical technique. And we just did real simple things of how to handle skin and how to cut. I just learned from him first drawing. He said, you know, when you use a scalpel, the pressure you put on the scalpel deflects the pulp of the finger. Mm. Ah, I thought, gee, mm. I'm doing a whole book with this guy. Anyway, it turned out great. <laughs> I learned so much. Just, he always told, and he always taught within surgery. And that was interesting. Dr. Edgerton would have long surgeries. They went on for hours. And he would teach while he did the operation. He was always remembering, ah, oh, when I was at Valley Forge, Valley Forge or whatever. So it was just like a constant graduate school for me. Wow, that's amazing. I, I, you know, I think most of my career really has been through the, the surgical visualization and, uh, and animations and stuff. But the experience of drawing in the OR, as you mentioned, is just, it can't be matched. It's so just, it's amazing, right? Do you have any like tips or advice? Because I, I think you probably, you know, we're taking it to a, a different level than I've done it at. Do you have any sort of tips or advice for capturing those moments? Because they come and go so quickly, right? Well. What I did was take my little sketchbook and go in there. The first thing I saw, because one of the surgeons was told to pick what I would see first, and he always teased me. So he picked orbital hypertelorism, which is a very, very long operation. There are kids where their eyes are, hmm, they have a biped nose, so their eyes are out here. They're very adorable. They're kind of like deer. Mm -hmm. Um, And they have to, cut the skin you pull it down like a bathing cap it's very shocking if you've never seen surgery before I've never seen an appendix come out and then they cut like eyeglasses of your bone and then they move the eyes together put it all back together again there you are done oh wow took all day but it was fascinating and I realized they don't stop for you and I'm drawing away so I got a camera and then I realized well, they don't stop for you to change film or if your camera jams. So I ended up with two cameras. Mm. So, you know, so I was well prepared and I just walked around like that. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Wow. What other uh, sort of things did you pick up as far as like interacting with people in the OR and making sure that you're not touching anything sterile? But, oh, oh uh, you're very, very, very. You said get as close as you want. Don't touch us and don't expect us to teach you anatomy. (laughs) And and end of interview. Mm -hmm. So again, I was on my own the whole time, but the nurses were wonderful. And anesthesia would say, hey, come over here. And they'd jam me in among all their, you know, gear, because they'd say, you can see better from here. I mean, everybody would really, really help me in those early days. Oh, that's awesome. Quite grateful. That's awesome. Yeah, we, we always make it a point to thank all the OR nurses on each of our videos. We have a tagline at the bottom there because really it, it's, it's all about forming good, positive relationships with those folks. Oh, I know. I always, at the end, I always, when they're scattering, I'd always say, thanks for the tour. And if somebody invited me to come see, say their hysterectomy or whatever they were proud of, I would take pictures, but I'd make a point of taking a picture of the guy who invited me, the chief guy, mm. make a really nice picture of him working. I'd 
run home and I made a little dark room in a bathroom and I shake up my little tube of pictures, couldn't wait to see them. And I'd always make them a nice big glossy eight by 10 and give it to them as a thank you for inviting me. Nice. So, you know, that, that worked. <laughs> nice. I love it. Public relations, right? <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I did it all, I guess. I wasn't aware of it. I just, you know, kept on, kept on doing it. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. That's awesome. Wow. So now, sorry, this is uh, Dr. Edgerton, you said? Yes. Milton Edgerton. He died last year. Okay. But he was one of the big three. Um, there was Edgerton, there was Converse up in Boston, there was Tessier in France. And at the end of the Second World War, we had sulfur drugs. So for the first time, people with really horrendous injuries were kept alive. And they came, you know, brought them back to, you know, Valley Forge or wherever. And um, there they were. They said, what are we going to do now? And so those three were the first to do muscle transplants within a body. Take, say, a small brevice off the top of your foot, artery, nerve, vein, always put it inside of the face, and it worked. Okay. So were these surgeons uh, ENT exclusively, or were they sort of like general surgeons? Dr. Edgerton was what was called reconstructive plastic. We didn't do facelifts and that sort of thing. He would get things brought in from all over, like some little kid way up in Appalachia, and the minister would see the deformity and arrange to bring him that sort of thing. Oh, wow. Uh, so P Ped's cases as well. I mean, they, they sort of just handled whatever. All kinds. All kinds. Um, in 2000, of course, I'd been here for quite a while, so I knew people. And there was a new young guy. Gamper, Dr. Gamper was head of plastics at that point because Dr. Edgerton had retired. And they had a, an arrangement over in India in a small village where a clinic had been built specifically for UVA plastic surgeons to come and work on cleft lip kids. And people came from all around. They had a free clinic for the week. And we were treated royally. And they had Rotarians. You know, we had the Rotarians here in the States. Well, they had huge, huge brotherhood of Rot Rotarians over there. And they met us at the airport. They met us at the train station. They put us in their cars, took us many miles to get to this little village. And when we're not there <clears throat> doing the cleft lip thing, it's a lying-in hospital for women giving birth. Okay. And it's very, again, it's like Appalachia. It's a poor, poor part of Bihar. And um, we left from Calcutta, took a train up into nowhere, and then got in the Rotarians' cars and drove for a long time to get to the village. And they thought, okay, we'll just show you the clinic because we'd start the next morning. And we drove down there, and it was like the whole town was standing outside of that clinic waiting for us. So Dr. Gamber said, well... We can do intake. We'd, we'd done all this travel from the United States and uh, across India, <clears throat> but that night we did intake of just filling out all the paperwork for these children. And uh, the people who were left who were going to do it the next day just laid down right in the hall and slept right there in front of the door. 
they weren't going to lose their chance for their kid. It was quite an experience. Wow, yeah, sounds like it. Oh, and I was there to take their photographs. Oh, okay. And uh, uh, when, when was that? What year? 2000. Oh, year 2000. 2000. So not that long ago. Oh, so I thought, hey, that's a good way to start the millennium. Why not? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> wow. And when I went to the first meeting, I walked in there and everybody was busy talk, talk, talking. And I looked around and I thought, I'm the only one in this room with a Medicare card. But it didn't seem to mind. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's awesome. I had my class this morning. I was just teaching. It's very interesting because <clears throat> I was already doing some medical art and I went to the art department at UVA, a young fellow. <clears throat> I said, why don't we have a class in medical art? Because there's a big hospital there, a big teaching hospital. And he looked at me very sternly and said, we don't do commercial art. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> There was a beautiful building right across from the hospital and an old building, but it had studios in it where I taught just regular art. And I thought, well, this would be ideal. You know, nurses or, you know, young doctors who want to do a little bit of drawing. Anyway, I didn't do it, so I called it scientific illustration. And I did night class, and I also went to a small community college here called Piedmont and taught scientific illustration. So basically, I was teaching medical art, and several of those students have gone on. One went to Galveston and got a degree. Another one, I don't know where she went, but she's back here, and she is, you know, they are, they do belong to the AMI. They're bucket illustrators. <laughs> <laughs> wow, okay. So it, this might be a good segue into some of your recent work. You had mentioned to me you're working with adults with traumatic brain injuries the TBIs. Each one is so different, it has to be one-on-one. -on -one. But when they make strides, improvement strides, or when they get stuff, I always just say, hey, they're just normal kids that had the misfortune of having an accident. So you don't look at them as being real deficient, deficient. I said to one of my doctors, I said, they're in there. And he just grinned and said, yes, they're in there. And that makes it such a pleasure. Like, for example, one kid I just got this year um, loves math. He started a picture, and most of the page was white. And he said, I really like math. I said, well, hey, math is beautiful. Wow. He filled it with numbers and pi r square and sine and all these things that I don't even know about. <laughs> and um, having said that was a language, then I told him that painting and drawing had language. And we always talked about it as language just straight line, dark and light and dark, a sensitive line, cross-hatching, shading, got into color. First thing I knew, I could put things on the table and he would draw that whole object, put color in the background, and he was off and running to do real drawings. Somewhere on his page for a while, there would always be a little pie or square someplace. But, <laughs> But he got it, you know, he got it. And, and he's doing really well. So <clears throat> what I have to do is introduce a new part of the language every time. Mm. And we've kind, of, we've kind of run the gamut. I mean, I, today I encourage them to do self-portraits and I show them examples. But we've done line, thin line, thick line, color, shading, three dimension, 
abstraction finally, you know, I could talk about abstraction when they felt comfortable with the language and what we were seeing. So, yeah, it, it's, it's really a nice thing. I, I enjoy doing it. That sounds amazing. So that, this is really a part of their therapy. And yeah, I, I never knew whether it was effective or not. So I did mention to the lady who runs that program, she's very smart and she's been doing it for years. And I said, I don't know how effective I'm being. And she said, oh, she gave me a very nice compliment. And they have a, a Zoom meeting on Monday mornings and they do business and other things too. I come in at 11 o'clock. And she said, "No, no, that's that's part of the part of the meeting that they really enjoy." So, I guess I'm stuck with it. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Well, it sounds so rewarding. Uh, you know? It's nice. It's very nice. And with somebody like that fellow, who made such dramatic changes, I mean, when I teach other people and have night classes, it was always very rewarding to have people come and want to do a still life or a scene, and you know. It, do it and they'd go off and they'd be happy with the course. But when you see somebody really struggle and make more major change in how they're seeing things, it's, uh, it's a little more fun. Wow, wow. Have you ever considered teaching at one of the grad programs or undergraduate programs? Well, I mean, I taught here in, in Charlottesville, but Paul, I'm gonna be 90 in September. <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair enough. Maybe, yeah, maybe you don't want another job. <laughs> so, so Zoom suits me. To, I mean, yeah, sometimes I look and I think, you know, I still can do it. Uh, I took a wonderful course <clears throat> at the law school. It was called Creativity. The guy was 94, and he was a, you know, a barn burner. And uh, <laughs> I really enjoyed it. It was a really good class. So I don't know. I don't know how long I'll do this, but... <laughs> Well, that, that's one of the things I love about this career is that you can just keep doing it. I well, mean, that's it, it. I can't imagine saying I've retired and I'm not going to do it. What I am doing is experimenting with acrylics. I always painted in, uh, uh, I'll show you, oil painting. Okay, yeah. Now that we're talking about ancient history. Uh, oh, nice. That's me in 1951. Oh, wow. And that's an oil painting. And, you know, nobody ever suggested medical art because nobody knew about it, I guess. Mm. But I was very, very close to it so many times. And I just had to fall into it by seeing the drawings here in, at UVA. So as far as teaching, yes, I, teaching on Zoom, it's a different thing entirely. And I found it quite fascinating. I wanted to maybe back up a little bit and just talk about when you were younger, were you always artistic at a younger age? Yeah, I was a real, I guess I was a weird child. I'd sit <laughs> with clouds all afternoon. I, I think I really frightened my mother doing that. And uh, I'd find things to do. I'd find old flower pots in my grandmother's, we called it the kitchen. I guess it used to be, but that's where they kept all the, the garden materials and, and old cans of paint and I'd paint up the flower pots and put flowers and animals on them and give them to my mom and just draw the trees across the street. And the first real material I got was when the Second World War started, my mother and dad had befriended the minister and his wife. They were quite, they were much younger 
but they didn't feel comfortable in the kind of the the barroom country club crowd. So they befriended my mother and dad. And <clears throat> Mrs. Hayes knew that I did a little bit of drawing on my own. So when they left town to go in the army, which uh, right that night, um, her husband signed up to be a chaplain in the army. And she brought me pastels, little box of broken pastels, and a piece of paper. And I always remember, it was a little square out of the corner, cut out of the corner. That Why would you do that? How does that happen? Of course, once you get a great big piece and you cut it up in a lot of pieces, that does happen. But anyway, that was my first material. And then from there, uh, just kept going. Then I was still just getting into high school. And a friend of my parents decided to have a summer school. Well, there's a little dinky town on the Allegheny River, north of Pittsburgh. And who goes to summer school? Well, I showed up in my little frilly dress <laughs> and found that the teacher, real salty guy with a plaid shirt and jeans, part Cherokee Indian. And he was a great teacher. And he was my first teacher. Well, I was his only student for two weeks. So every day we'd get the easels and the paints and go out and he'd set me up and he'd talk to me. And I just did it. You know, I didn't know that you're being artistic or, hey, this is what you're supposed to be doing. But it set me up because then when I went to Syracuse University, all the kids from the high school of music and design, anyway, really arty kids came and I couldn't believe these creatures, you know. And I could paint fast, I could draw fast, which meant. I could get something on my easel before the teacher came in. So there was always something to be talked about by the time the teacher came around the room. And that was saving grace to be able to do that quickly. And so then I took all the courses there. And then 10 years later, I went to Carnegie Tech down in Pittsburgh and I walked in and the dean looked at me and I looked at him and we both said, what are you doing here? And it was my <laughs> old dean from Syracuse who's now the Dean of Art at Carnegie Tech. And I said, well, I, want, I feel I have to get a master's and I need a job. And he, so he fixed me up. He gave me a class to teach and put me with a respected painting teacher there. And I got, my, I, I got it done. Wow. Wow. What a great story. I think one of the most frequent questions I get from folks who are interested in getting into the field is, you know, how do you enter the field? What's the best way to prepare? Adding on to what you've already sort of described, what, what else do you think younger people could kind of benefit from? Uh, well, you know, it's such a different world now. It's such a different world. I, it's all so digital. I keep paying to, to belong to the AMI because I really appreciate what they did for me back, way back when I didn't even know you existed mm -hmm. and I didn't know what I'd be doing. But a publisher, when I did the Brain Book, suggested that I should join the AMI. And I looked into it and I joined it. And it was very helpful. So I just have kept on there. I've gone to a couple of the meetings. The first one was in Toronto. And, uh, and I, that's where I met Nancy Joy. And I remember Grant's Atlas with a little N Joy under those drawings. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that was kind of weird. I mean, what's joyful about these little gray drawings? <laughs> I realized it's a real person, you know? <laughs> <laughs> And, and 
anyway, she was very nice to our group that came up to Toronto. And then I noticed for years afterwards, she must have been a very, very good teacher because all the new stuff that came up on the AMI, back when they had much more of a gallery, which I wish they still had, mm. and you mm. could really see people's work. And I thought, gee, all those people from Toronto are really good, every one of them. I mean, oh, good in the sense that it stuck out. I always could, I could find Toronto. I could find Toronto on that gallery. So kind. You're so kind. That's, that's great. I, well, one of the things I love about seeing the work from all of the different graduate programs is they each sort of have this own uh, flavor or, you know, style that's unique to each of those programs. Oh, definitely. Well, one of the things that helped me a lot in surgery was, as I mentioned, the camera. Mm. So when it turned out at the end that I did Edgerton's book, every frontispiece is one of my photographs. But I'll show you my favorite photograph that I ever, ever, ever took. And I call it Dr. Edgerton's Hands. And where are we? Oh, nice. Oh, that's a beautiful photo. And, you know, the light just hit his thumbs. And I've got to get that picture. Click. Oh, yeah. That's my favorite. But I didn't take the pictures in order to copy them onto the page. Mm. I took the pictures to make my own library of hands and instruments so they would be proper. And then as far as the people's faces, I never used a real patient unless it was required. Right. I would go to things like car show, you know, people go to look at old jalopies and race cars and stuff. And I wasn't looking at the cars. I'd just take shots of all the people's faces. And then I could take types of people to put in my pictures. Oh, nice. So that's, that's what I did with the camera. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, building up that archive of you know, assets that you can then use into so your own I had, work. I had the faces because, yeah. for example, when uh, Dr. Edgerton said, well, I want to show opening a cyst. Well, you don't just cut into a cyst. You put sharp scissors in and you open it to drain mm. a cyst. I mean, you just learn these things when somebody tells you what they want. And so I said, well, where will we put it? He said, how about the axilla under the arm? So then I'm thinking, okay, I can't stick it on a really old person. I can't stick it on a little baby. That would be quite shocking. So I got this real macho looking guy with his mustache and, uh, and I stuck it on him. <laughs> <laughs> it was from one of those car, car expos. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. <laughs> was there a particular surgical discipline you enjoyed the most? to illustrate? Uh, I think I spent so much time with Dr. Edgerton. And since he was doing a book on how you move skin and how you repair skin, and some things were tricky, like how to tie a knot in a deep hole. You know, that takes about eight different pictures, that, those kind of things, technical things. But also, just it was a pleasure to do the more surface sort of pictures. I could pick the face, pick what was happening, and um, and I could always just say, oh, "I got to think about it." And he never pressured me. I could go away and come back three days later and show him some sketches. So you know, very fortunate that way. Um, I did see <clears throat> some. Well, I was watching thoracic surgery that I'd been invited to. And I, at that point, I was still drawing. And I'm turning the page. 
and the surgeon very sharply said, don't turn the page. You're, you're disturbing the air. <laughs> oh, whoa. <laughs> yeah, so I thought, well, how am I going to do the drawing? So there I was stroking the leaf of paper carefully so I could get to the next page. And needless to say, I was not invited back there again. And I didn't really find it that, that charming to look at. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. Wow. That, that leads me to another question I, I have to ask you because I think this is one of the greatest challenges for all of us working as, you know, medical illustrators and especially in surgery is how to manage those client relationships. What sort of advice or tips do you have for just working with other folks who might have really different personalities? They do have different personalities. I've, I've seen quite a few. Um, I think you just have to make sure that your work is what you think is right for the occasion. And if it isn't right for them, it's no big deal. You know, then get somebody else. Um, well, not so easy in a small place like here. <laughs> but um, I think it just has to do with your own, your own personality and how you meet people just in any walk of life. And if you're honest and you're kind and you're honest with the kind of work that you present and how you how you can explain it and you can be flexible and change it. I know one of those very elaborate carbon dust, which is on scratch board, so you don't change it easily. And boy, I felt good. And Dr. Edgerton said, oh, you know, we usually have a nurse with a clamp holding this. And I look at the picture, which already is designed. I think, no. So anyway, I managed to get it in there, work fine. But a funny thing happened to me over in, in Switzerland because I ended up doing a bunch of drawings over there. Oh, wow. And I did a cross section of the head and all the bony parts, I did, um, you know, line, 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 or maybe I did stipple, I forget what it was. Anyway, I filled in all the bones and I took it the next day to the surgeon and he looked at it and I could see he was very distressed and he didn't know what to say to me. And then he finally said, you know, that texture over here means cancer. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> so the whole picture was covered with that texture. Oh, I, no. I said, oh, that's all right. I'll fix it. Well, I didn't use white out. I just did it over. But you don't know when you're, when you're in a different country. When you're in a different country, you don't know what you're seeing. But that's what I love, too, is seeing ORs in different countries. Mm. And they played classical music in the Swiss OR. Gwen, lovely string quartet would he play. Not there, but, you know, a tape. Sure. And uh, I went to one in uh, England. It was raining like crazy. Thought I'd never get there because... The train was held up because um, political people from the United States were on the train, so they stopped everything else. And I thought, how am I going to get to that hospital? How? You know? Oh, man. Well, I made it. I just made it. But all kinds of funny things happen to you when you're out traveling. Oh, yeah. Oh, I love traveling. 
I, ha- I haven't done it much professionally. I went to one work conference in Brazil and that, that was an amazing experience. Really interesting. Have you ever been to any surgical conferences for the different surgical associations? No, not, not the medical. I've only been to the AMI once. Okay. I went to Chicago and I went to the one in Toronto. <clears throat> and I just mostly, I looked what's on the AMI web. And of course, everybody loses me now <laughs> because uh, of all the uh, digital stuff. I mean, I only just got a smartphone two weeks ago. So, oh, um, congratulations! Between, between between Zoom and a smartphone, I feel like I'm being dragged into the 21st century by my hair. But don't uh, worry, a lot. A, I think we all feel that way. <laughs> yeah. Well. I, I really enjoy reading it, and I do question some people, and I get remarkable answers. I wrote to somebody, I mean, I don't think I understood one word in his little, like, all digital, do this and app and blob, and, and I said, what planet are you on? And then I explained, <laughs> I said, I come from pen and ink and carbon dust, <laughs> and I got the nicest letter back. And then he explained to me that he really, really loves studio work. Because I said the one thing Mm. that I would just tell everybody, don't give up the joy of your studio work. Mm. Painting, drawing, sculpture, pottery, whatever it is. Save a little time and keep doing that. It keeps you grounded. It keeps you focused. And it's instructive in its own way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the uh, traditional media, I I think I had mentioned to you before, I, I hear from a lot of people in you know um, my age group that they crave getting back to just paper and pencil and pen it's so there a lot of people even though they work a lot in photoshop or 3d they they want to get back on paper yeah i i do wish that we had a bigger gallery space on the ami that we could see people could put in their studio work as well as their latest i'm so proud of the virus, the little virus guy with all the knobs, and I think all the coronavirus uh, our guys pictures. Do that. Oh, yeah, yeah, all over the world now. I'm just so proud for them. And um, but a lot of the other digital stuff. When I first saw it, I thought, well, how do you know that's an enzyme or protein or something? Mm-hmm. And then that becomes a language. Somebody starts it, and then they'll do it. I mean, that little coronavirus thing is going to be. That's what it's going to be forever. Yep. That, that shape and that, that depiction, that symbol. Uh, but a lot of the first digital things I saw, I thought, I don't understand this. Because I was used to seeing anatomical drawings by Bradle and people like that. Oh, sure, yeah. And these are, they're very beautiful. You know, those splooches and thingies and twisties and different colors. But who's to say what they are? They didn't mean anything to me. Mm. And that's where I was very surprised where people said, yeah, I still like to work in the studio too. And it, it just seems like some of the digital stuff could have a little bit more of the quality of coming from the human hand. And I don't know how you do that because I saw one thing about shaping bone. And I went on, 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 on. And I was moved. I just put on the web, I just, um, why don't you just paint it? <laughs> it was so painful to watch them twist that thing around digitally and 
you know, the sum total wasn't that great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> oh, I, I absolutely do. Yeah, you can you can end up putting a lot of time into developing like a 3D model of something, and then when you, you get your final render, it doesn't look all that great. And and buying buying some of the programs, you know, first way way back, I think I saw Maya or something like that, and I thought eh, maybe I'll play around with it. And so I pulled it up on the web, and it was six hundred dollars, and that all. You know, I was out in the world not doing, <laughs> not doing the uh, hospital stuff anymore. I, uh, no, I don't think I need to do that. Do you still prefer like carbon dust as your kind of like bread and butter technique? No, I don't still do it. Oh, okay. It's very tedious. In fact, I don't even know if you can get scratch for it anymore. They did kind of substitute a, a grainy plastic film, but you know, just kind of took the joy out of it, that stuff. I mean, then you're mm. just trying to reproduce something that can be photographed. And even the whole idea <clears throat> of sending your drawings off to the publisher to be photographed, that's a moot point. That doesn't happen anymore either. Yeah. So yeah. the hands-on part, no, I think I, I just enjoy the painting and that sort of thing now. Is it? Would you say acrylics or oils? Yeah, Do you well... I always did oils, <clears throat> but then I didn't paint for a long time because I was doing uh, the medical art with its own particular materials, and I enjoyed what I was doing, so I didn't even think about it until, you know, later on I thought, well, I, I'll, I, I'll try painting again, and I'll try the acrylics now, and so I'm just kind of playing with that. Right on. I I enjoy acrylics. I also like gouache. Have you ever yeah. used gouache much? Yes, gouache yeah. is very nice too. Yeah. I like I, it. There's always the strengths and the challenges of all these different mediums, of course, right? Every single one. Yeah. Every single one. I know my folks thought they wanted to do watercolor, and I'm thinking it's so delicate to float that color on top of the paper. They're not all going to be able to get it. Mm -hmm. So right now we're using Prismacolor pencils mm. and they're all scattered wherever they are, you know, in their homes or in group homes or whatever, wherever they can get on zoom sure. during this pandemic. So mm -hmm. it isn't the time to show a complicated thing unless I was in the room with them and could really show them. Yes. Yeah. I think, yeah, especially with the traditional media, it really helps to see someone do it right in front of you. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think, and my people are so varied in their abilities. So how long have you been doing that now with the uh, TBI adults? Oh, these young adults? Uh, about 20 years. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Wow. Wow. It can be serious because all of these, a lot of the young fellas, you know, they either cracked up their car or their motorcycle or whatever, those kind of accidents. Mm. Then there were some other more odd accidents. Actually, when I have a class, I don't even particularly want to know how they were injured because then if there's something that's domestic violence or something like that, you know, it just kind of colors your, your approach to that student. Mm. So I just yeah. like to come in, do the drawing, do the painting. <laughs> yeah, probably a good idea to just, yeah, yeah maybe leave some things outside <laughs> the classroom. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, I leave a lot of things outside. Yeah. Oh, it's very interesting. One girl told me about horse therapy. Oh, okay. 
kids get to be put on horses and ride around. And actually, Dr. Edgerton's wife had a program <clears throat> on their farm. She had beautiful horses. And university girls came out, and they put these little kids on horses. And I thought, oh, isn't that nice? They're getting a ride. Well, what my student told me, she said, when you're on a horse and it moves, it becomes your legs. Oh, that's awesome. And I thought, oh, she's had that experience. She wasn't just sitting on a horse having fun, having a ride. But it meant more, the therapy part. Oh, yeah. It sounds like it. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. Wow. That was nice. Wow. I mean, they teach me a lot. I mean. <laughs> yeah, working with so many different people over the years. I mean, you probably have learned different approaches, especially for working with doctors, working with clients. Do you have any sort of like a, a process for especially revisions? I, I think I was very lucky because the goals <clears throat> that I did for the books were pretty well laid out. <clears throat> the, the brain book, I mean, you got a brain and you're really focused on that object. And even this man was a very well-known neuroanatomist from Sweden here at UVA. Even he had a tough time getting a brain out of the morgue. We'd mm -hmm. go over there and Larry would say, oh, well, we, we, want, we want the student to do this dissection. Well, they can't. The hypothesis hangs down from the bottom of the brain kind of like this. Right. And there's bone all around it. And you have to really, really, really know the anatomy. And Dr. Hamer wanted to take the chisel and do it himself. The more guy wouldn't let him. And so the <laughs> student did it and shoop, off it came. So we went back to the lab three o'clock in the afternoon. The morgue called and said, <clears throat> we have a brain for you. <laughs> and he went over and he did it himself and he got what he wanted. But just little titchy things like that to think, what's wrong with these people? Mm -hmm. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I always remember that. I, I thought that was so strange. And another time I went in the morgue. But I told them I was coming and the guy was on the phone. He said, oh, yeah, go on in, go on in. And there was a big rumpus going on over at one of the tables. And one of the guys is saying, well, it didn't happen on our watch. <laughs> so I looked at a Marfan syndrome baby or something and got out of there. Um, it isn't all smooth and it, you know, accidents do happen mm, and you, mm -hmm. you just don't want to get involved in it. You know, it's none of your business. It's none of your business. Yeah, Those they, are definitely words to live by. <laughs> yeah, they, have, they, have, they have enough to deal with without some odd bod coming in and vetting their performance. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, things just, things happen all the time. Mm -hmm. Speaking of things going on all the time, when you're working, uh, did you have any sort of uh, a routine or any way of getting involved and Im immersed in your own work so that you could be as focused as possible when you're starting a painting or a drawing? Well, the first thing I do is find out the operation I was going to see and when they're going to start. And I'd be up there if it was 7.30 in the morning. I was there because I, didn't, I wasn't just there to see the operation. I was there to see the whole thing. And I would see what that person looked like and pretty soon they've got betadine all over them. Pretty soon they're covered up to here. But you have a really personal feeling of who that person is. Mm. Then the doctors come in 
and you step out of the way, let them all get arranged where they are, and then you can get in as close as you want, and whatever's relevant at the time that looks interesting, I'd start taking pictures. And there was a kind of an office. It wasn't, I wouldn't call it a medical illustration office. And I'm so glad they never hired me because then I couldn't have done that. But one guy would come down and he was supposed to come down at 1130 and take a picture. And so Ron would come in and he'd see me there with my sketchbook and he'd come over, what's happened? What's happened? So I'd start at the beginning. I go blah, blah, blah. And then they did this and then they did that. And then they did this. Then he'd take the picture. Then he'd have to go back upstairs. And the fact that I gave those freebie 8x10s to the people who invited me, that ticked off the person who ran that office. And, uh, well, we could, we could have gotten money for that picture. Mm, uh-oh. And I thought, you can always hire me. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so glad they didn't. <laughs> I don't think they knew what to do with me. And also, since I worked for Dr. Edgerton, nobody touched me. I was protected. Mm. He was a big man on campus, and boy, that helped. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. we have kind of a similar arrangement. Uh, my group and I, you know, we, we have a surgeon we report to, and he kind of, you know, plays referee a little bit sometimes to help us kind of smooth things over with other, other folks in the hospital. Sure. No, no, it, it's, um, it's a culture. It's very interesting. I liked it. <clears throat> I liked every minute of being in the OR, being in the hospital. I just found it fascinating. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It, it, it is a, it is an amazing experience and knowing that these people are, their entire careers are built around like putting us back together, you know? And, and Absolutely. Yeah. But it's they're amazing. Different. The different um, groups are so different. Like the guy doing thoracic was so worried about the air um, that, mm. you know, you just really couldn't operate there. I always said orthopedists wear plaid pants and, uh, you know, they're just a really jolly group and you'd meet them at some, and Dr. Edgerton and his wife would have a bunch of, you know, colleagues in and you could just tell the orthopedists would have really bright clothes and really bright personalities and just be going on. And some of the other, say, neurosurgeons, much more laid back, much more thoughtful, much quieter. Mm-hmm. It was so interesting. Yeah, different personality types for each of the disciplines, right? Yeah. Hey, they get it done. That's the point. Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. So what do you do uh, for fun in your own artistic practice? Do you have like stuff that you, do, you work on for fun? Something I thought, if you had told me when I was still in hospital, hey, you'll be making beads, you'll be making jewelry, I'd say, in your dreams. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm trying to work off, well, because we traveled a lot, I, tried, I got a lot of ethnic beads, like beads in India, that kind of thing. And okay. you don't want to just scatter those off to a high school or something. So I'm trying now to use my best beads and make, finish off some jewelry. And then I'll give the rest of the stuff to a goldsmith I know who has a little shop and said, hey, I'll take the beads. Oh, cool. We'll see. <laughs> I'm not quite ready to give them up yet, but, but I, I really enjoy it because what it makes you do is do design. Ah, Take okay. time and design. Uh, when I went out to the Navajo Nation, we had a group here. We'd take food and clothes out there. 
and that you get to see people selling beads on the side of the street and they call it string them and sell them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. little Indian kid, we're going to buy it. And I don't do string them and sell them. <laughs> I've seen some other AMI members post uh, some of their jewelry that's, you know, anatomically themed or scientific themed. Mm-hmm. Have, you, have you done any of those? Like a no, anatomical no. design? No? No, no. Well, I always wear it around, give kind of a test run mm-hmm. to see if the weight is right. And uh, if the okay. focus beads are in the right place. I mean, they're little subtlety things if, if you want to do it. Take your time go back and restring the darn thing but it's worth it you know you you get a pc a lot right on right on what are some of the like when you think back on your career uh what are some of the things i guess you maybe you would call it like a, a victory moment or you know something that was a like a huge challenge or something that it stressed you out but then you you had like an aha moment or like oh i got it and well like, i'll tell you i was when I was over in Geneva, I went to the Institute de Morphology, it was called, University of Geneva. And I walked in there and everybody knew who Edgerton was. I mean, how did I know? And they knew that I drew for him. And when I had done the body in here in uh, UVA, women had just been let into the university. They came in in 1970. Before that, it was a young man's shirt and tie coat, very proper gentleman's school. And when the women came in, and the whole age ripped jeans and the whole thing, it was a big, big change. So when I wanted to do a body, an outsider, and the guy was told to call up, said, absolutely not. And I thought, wait a minute, the head of anatomy invited me to do this. I wasn't going to give up. And he went on and on and on. I said, he said, besides, you have to buy your body. And I said, how much is it? He said, $395. And I said, I'll take it. <laughs> Big silence. And he said, okay, come on January 19th. <laughs> I mean, you know, you don't realize he didn't want me in there. One, because I was a middle-aged woman that spoke from in his eyes, and I was not a medical student. And I just shouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. But anyway, that's where I made my portfolio. And that's what led me to Dr. Hamer and Dr. Edgerton. So it was worth 395 bucks. So when I went to Switzerland and said I, we were going to be here for a semester and could I do dissection? Oh, absolutely, madam, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, how much, how much will it be? No, no, you will be, you will be our guest. Quite a different uh, attitude there. <laughs> and then they yeah. said, if we could just have a few drawings at the end. I said, well, that's unfair. And so, well, the one surprising thing that people kind of like the story, I was doing drawings for a plastic surgeon over at their main hospital. And he wanted to show the muscles around the eye in the, inside the orbit. And you can't do that with a cadaver because a cadaver is stiff mm. from aldehyde. You can't right. really stretch things around so we had a coffee hour and behind the anatomy department was the police department so the detectives would come over and sit in our coffee hour and laugh and have their eat our cookies and drink our coffee and i went there so i could hear french maybe i just pick up more of the language 
So when Dr. Montanon asked me that, <clears throat> I thought, hey, the police department's right there. So I said, hey, if you're doing autopsy sometime, and I told them what he wanted, um, would you let me know? Well, then I didn't hear anything. You know, a couple of weeks went by and forgot about it, and I had my own little, they gave me my own room with a cadaver and all that, Jacques Cousteau. And uh, <laughs> this cop came in with a bucket and plopped it on my desk and in French said, I'll be back at 4 o'clock, and he left. <laughs> so okay. I looked inside, and here's this really nice old guy looking up at me. A head was in there, blue eyes, nice mustache. And the only thing I could think of was, how the heck did you end up with your head in a bucket in Geneva, Switzerland? <laughs> it was just so odd to me. <laughs> that is odd. It is. It was very odd. So anyway, then I, I looked at my watch and it was 11 o'clock and I thought, okay, forget lunch. I don't know how long it'll take because I hadn't used that kind of material before. But anyway, mm -hmm. I got the drawing done, <clears throat> had a little time left over and I did all the cartilages of the nose. They're very pretty. If you ever take a nose part uh, in there, he's like little bird wings here. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, he came back. Didn't say a word, didn't look at the drawing, just I thanked him and he disappeared. Next time I go to coffee hour, nobody said a word. Nobody said, hey, did you get the material? Nothing. Nobody <laughs> ever mentioned it again. So I had these two drawings, you know, kind of out of the blue. Yeah. And I still have them. <laughs> <laughs> I was so afraid that they might pick those when they wanted to choose what they wanted to keep. Yeah. I left all the drawings on the desk over the weekend. I thought, they'll never know if I don't put this, but hey, you know, a deal's a deal. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, they did not pick those drawings. Do you still have them? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, there's a thing, Lloyd's Library is out in Cincinnati. Have you heard of that? Uh, I don't think I have. Oh, um, trying to think of the lady, uh, a well known illustrator is out there and she talked about it at one of the meetings i think at baltimore and they want they want portfolio stuff from my era mm. and i see that a lot of people have already given a whole lot of things there well <clears throat> the edgerton book and the hamer book are both in the uh, rare books library here at uva so i asked that librarian very nice lady and i said what should I do? Could, should, I, should I get my stuff here or should I put it out in Lloyd Library? She said, send it to Lloyd Library. They do exhibit. We loan things to them, but otherwise they're just blocked up here. And so, of course, I can't give them, I can't give them the illustrations out of Edgerton's book because I don't own them. <laughs> right, yeah. All that. But anyway, I think... I think more people should know about the Lloyd Library. And I oh, yeah, wonder. I'm definitely going to look this up. Yeah, her name just escapes me, and she's big in the AMI. But she did come and speak at one of our meetings and, you know, kind of advocated doing that. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, I've just pulled up the website here. Oh, this is really nice. A lot of scientific, botany, looks like natural science. Natural history. Very cool. 
I love libraries. That's actually uh, something my wife and I, whenever we travel to another city, like a foreign city, we always go to the biggest library in that city. Wonderful. Well, if you ever go to Cincinnati, Ohio, go see the Lloyd Library. Apparently it's famous. It's, it's a really, really nice institution. And, uh, and maybe you decide and leave some of your drawings there. I mean, I could leave my drawings lying around. My kids would keep them as curiosities. But, you know, what's the point? <laughs> time they're not going to relive my life through my drawings mm-hmm. so would would you say those uh drawings you did of the french uh the severed head that landed in your uh in your office there would would you put those up with uh, your favorite of of the work that you've done or do you do you have any favorites well i showed you my favorite photograph and mm-hmm. i don't have those drawings right here if i thought of it i'd have it and just Hold it up for you, but <laughs> <laughs> no problem. That was so, a beautiful photograph. I, it was really fun. I, I was really very surprised. It, it was a last minute idea. The whole book was gray and black and white, and all the drawings are black and white. And so every frontispiece is one of the produce. And you know, worked out, worked out good for me. <laughs> nice, nice. So uh, do you have any favorite artists or uh, any people that jump out at you? Well, one of the artists I really, really like has nothing to do with uh, medical is Diebenkorn, D-I-E-B-E-N-C-O-R-N, from out in uh, California. He's no longer living, but he does abstraction that actually means something. It's kind of like you see what he was doing. Uh-huh. The, the layout of the streets or things of that sort. They're beautiful and the color is beautiful. What was the name? I'm, I'm trying to look it up right now. What was it, the name again? Devin Korn? Name, his name? Deben Korn. D-I-E-B-E-N Korn. Oh, I think Richard Deben Korn? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ah, okay. Okay. Oh, wow. I mean, we have so many abstractionists, you know, and I have books on de Kooning and, you know, the whole thing, but I have a book on Diebenkorn too. And when I took a train down to Santa Barbara and I looked out over the ground and there was just kind of a brown dike for water retention and a brown field and a strip of green that had the light on it, but it had such an abstract quality and it was Deben Corn Country, and I thought, yeah, that's it. It, it uh, influenced him. Oh wow! Some of these images have a sort of a Frank Lloyd Wrightish kind of feel to them. <laughs> that's true. Wow! Cool stuff. Amazing. Well, Florence, we've, we're at about an hour now. Thank you so well, much for uh, for agreeing to do this. This is this has been great. Well, we may not have we may not have hit some of the little subjects you were thinking of but we got off on sidetracks and here we are yeah i enjoyed it it. thanks a lot so nice to meet you (laughs) likewise and uh maybe we can do this again sometime anytime you want there are more stories always (laughs) awesome amazing oh gosh (laughs) well it's been a great great pleasure thank you likewise likewise okay all right well have have a fantastic week and thank you again so much for your time This has been awesome. You're very welcome. And thank you to you as well for listening. I hope you enjoyed this interview. 
And if you'd like to see some of the artwork we mentioned, please check out the video version of this interview on my YouTube channel. I'll provide a link in the episode description. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay up.